So I had a fun event this week, which was uh, a fun pastime of building my skeletons for my wedding. Were any of them 12 feet? They were not 12 feet because those ones are sold out nationwide. However, my parents got really excited at, at the Lowe's like skeleton section. There's a skeleton section? Of the like website and everything. And so my dad found a pumpkin with two little skeletons in it that plays the wedding march in a minor key. Uh, and so he found that and he also found a six foot groom and five and a half foot, uh, bride skeleton matching set. Uh, and he said, would, which, which of these would you like for the wedding? And I said, well, I have to think about it. And they said, they're both on hold at Lowe's. And I said, I'm pretty positive about the pumpkin. I don't know about the other one just yet. So the next day I hear from my parents and we're talking about other things. They say, oh, you'll have to come by sooner so that way you can set up the skeleton. I go, what? They go, yeah, we just bought them. So they went to Lowe's just to look at them and then they came home with them. So I said, you're going to have to you're going to have to come by and build them. So when are you just going to admit to the fact that you've decided halfway through the planning process to pivot on your theme and your new theme is the Haunted Mansion? (laughs) Pretty much. I also found out when I was building them this week that they talk and move and their eyes light up. You have audio animatronic bride and groom skeletons. They also, uh, they have a motion sensor as well. I don't even know what to say to that. But, and I had a conversation with my mother, and she goes, yeah, she goes, so they'll look great at next year's wedding, too, when we have every, when we get to have everybody. This way, it cuts down on you having to take pictures with so many people. They can take pictures with this couple instead. I have a friend who makes props as his hobby. Like, he, you know, like, homemade decorations and animatronics and stuff. And yeah. He goes all out on Halloween. And I went I went to visit him last year for Halloween and his two big pieces were he had a skeleton in like this um like wooden crate round crate like you would go like collect apples in when you go apple picking and it was filled with water and he like fed a tube up the skele- like up the side of the skeleton. <gasps> into a rum bottle and the skeleton was drinking himself drunk in the tub of you know quote rum and then he had another one it was a skeleton on like a pirate ship wheel with a big um with a big mast and sail behind him and the skeleton was actually like turning the wheel back and forth he had it motorized and there was audio for everything do you you want me to like reach out to him and see if he does weddings (laughs) Do you want skeleton pirates at your wedding? Like, I have a skeleton guy. What's crazy is we we thought about having a Halloween wedding because Halloween is so important to us and everything. And we both said, nah, we're going to do November 7th because our real anniversary is November 3rd. And so we thought we'd just have this big, long, week-long celebration in a way. And... um I think this was just my way to extend Halloween 
for another month. I think that's it. How 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 a week? How how a month? It's it's gonna it's gonna last forever. It's the reason for the season <laughs> and for marriage. <laughs> Water, earth, fire, air. Long ago, the four nations lived together in harmony. Then. Everything changed when the Fire Nation attacked. Only the Avatar, master of all four elements, could stop them. But when the world needed him most, he vanished. A hundred years passed and my brother and I discovered the new Avatar, an airbender named Aang. And although his airbending skills are great, he has a lot to learn before he's ready to save anyone. But I believe Aang can save the world. And welcome to the Pi Show. I'm your host, Kelly. And I'm Colton. And today we are revisiting Season 1, Chapter 12, The Storm. When Aang, Katara, and Sokka find themselves broke, Katara urges Sokka to take a fishing job. But the plan goes awry when the angler recognizes Aang. Colton, I don't think this summary does a good job of summarizing this episode. Why not? Those are the events that take place in the episode. Technically. But I feel... Alright, let me let me just freeform. Let me just freeform. Okay. Um, I, 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 just, see, I haven't freeformed since episode one where I did a terrible job at summarizing. So, give it a go. Take it away. No. Nope. 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 I scared myself out of it. Really? Come on. It's just, it was okay. a dark and stormy night, and our heroes <laughs> found themselves revisiting their past traumas. That was good. That's what I, I wanted to say something like that. You know, when a storm, when a, um, uh, when our main characters get, when Aang, Katara, and Sokka ca- find themselves caught in a storm, when Aang, Katara, and Sokka, no, and Zuko, no, when our heroes and anti Kelly, you have the cliche opening. Start with the cliche opening. It was a dark and stormy night. On a dark and stormy night, Aang and Zuko revisit their past and how they've come to be on the path they're on today. I mean, you just said what I said with different words, but sure. I tried! (laughs) I tried. You did try. (laughs) To paraphrase what I was saying. Well, we were both going for the same thing. To summarize the episode. I mean, there's only so many ways that you can skin a cat. Only so many ways. So, yeah, flashback episode. Flashback episode. I feel that the flashback episode is so kind of quintessential to Avatar. It, that, it's, it's one of the, this is one of those episodes that gives me, like, strong nostalgia feels for this show. Oh, like, like this flashback episode in particular, not, like, the idea of flashback episodes. Yeah, yeah no, this flashback episode in particular. Hmm. Okay, I I don't think this is one of my, like, totem, this is the show kind of episodes, mm-hmm. but I, I see why you say that. I think it's the, it, so this feels, we've seen flashes of flashbacks, like, it, but it, this is whole, this whole episode is about events in the past, for the most part. And it's this one action that is bringing up all of this turmoil within both Aang and Zuko. See, when I when I think about flashbacks, especially in book one, I think 
my brain initially goes to um, the the Southern Air Temple mm. because that's you know the first time that we see a lot of this backstory. Yeah, but I I do think that you know in the the fog of memory, not having just watched episodes, I kind of pull in some detail from this episode in my memory of that episode. I think this episode is so interesting because we have two characters who on episode one in the pilot were on continuing journeys. They weren't starting their journey necessarily. Like Aang knew he was the avatar when he walked out of that iceberg and he had a path that he was already on. Zuko is out to find the avatar and there is something that brought him to that path and he's already on that path. Whereas the pilot was a lot of the start of Katara and Sokka's journey. So this is the first episode where we're getting the answers as to why is Aang the Avatar? How was he the Avatar? Um, why was he in that iceberg in the first place? And then we have Zuko and figuring out, all right, his quest to find the Avatar and regain his honor, but what put him on that path? And we're finally going to get some answers. Yeah, yeah. And I think the the really shocking thing for me the first time I saw this episode was just how, you know, like you said, episode one, these characters, these two characters in particular, are already on their main journey. They're they're continuing that, and we're picking up the story with these two new characters, Katara and Sokka, entering into that journey. But and and so like your 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 initial thought, I think, at least mine was, you know, this journey that Aang and Zuko have been on has been going on for a while. Like they're not new to it. They're established in it, but that's really not the case. We learn in this episode, like Aang found out Aang started his journey a couple of days, maybe a couple of weeks before the pilot from his perspective. Yeah. But I think it's also interesting that this character has a history that we are not yet aware of. Um, that they have something that put them on that path. Uh, I think I think of it in terms of context, and uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think of the best way to say this. I think my best example of what I feel when I watch this episode is whenever you call customer service and you get like the third person you've spoken to in customer service, and the customer service person is brand new to this situation that you were having to deal with, with the item that you have been calling about for maybe like three weeks. And so I come to this story with three weeks of heartache over this product that I'm having issues with. But the customer service person is two seconds into meeting me. And so that's what we're seeing for Zuko and Aang is that three weeks of frustration is that time before uh, that brought them to that point. And I think especially with Zuko, that's something that I'm so fascinated about because they keep talking about his honor, his respect, his every, he's banished. And we've just been hinting at it. And this is episode 12 that we're finding out why. Why is he our antagonist? We don't even know why he's the bad guy. (laughs) Well, we know the Fire Nation is the bad guy, but why is Zuko specifically out to kidnap? And we're halfway through our first season. Mm-hmm. A sixth of the way through the series. Mm-hmm. That is, that's a slow burn. 
But I think it's I think it's smart to do it that far out though, with the backstory that Zuko has because I don't know you you've got sympathy for Zuko, and I don't think you want that sympathy too early on if that makes sense. Yeah, agreed. Because otherwise, it takes the bite out of him. Yes, early that that early tension. Yes. Yes. Then he'd be all bark and no bite. That fear. Yes. So I think we're going to talk a lot about Zuko and Aang specifically in this episode. I think that's, you know, we're going to really dig into that. Yeah. But before we do that, before we talk about maybe some of the other, you know, plot things, the character moments that happen. Did you watch the recap this week? I know you you normally do, but did you specifically watch it this week? I I did, but please, please discuss. I've been paying attention since the waterbending scroll to the way that the scenes in the story that we have seen so far are being recontextualized week over week to prepare the audience for the episode that we're about to see. And I think we get a couple of really interesting points about specifically Aang and Zuko this week before we get into the episode. So we, we go through a lot of the journey and a lot of the the beats that we've seen thus far between these two characters. Not all of them, not all, not even all of the big ones, just a lot of them. And I think what stuck out to me was it felt like the recap was really trying to hammer home the idea that at the end of the day, what Zuko wants is some sort of responsibility. He wants to... to feel responsible for something in his life. He wants he wants a duty to be given to him. A piece of control. That is his. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And Aang has a responsibility, has a duty that he desperately wants to give up. Mm. I think this recap paints them as direct foils to each other in that way. Okay. I see that. I see that. It's so funny how, like, a little thing like the recap before an episode of Here's What You Missed or, like, you know, last week on Avatar, something like that can contextualize, an ep- like, the episode that's forthcoming. It's so exciting. I think it's sort of a way to to say, like, watch for this. Watch what, like... Here's a thing we've been doing. We're going to remind you that we, we're like we're going to highlight this thing we've been doing. That way, when we go to change it over the next twenty minutes, when we poke it with a stick, you'll you'll have you know an appreciation for it and an understanding that you might not have if we didn't highlight it and how you know what the status quo was in the first place. It's just slightly turning the head. Exactly. Yeah. It's saying, "Look here, because I'm about to do something with this." That's a really cool thing to pick up on. I really like that you picked up on that. Thank you. Thank you. That's cool. I think you you kind of pointed me in that direction with, you know, some of our conversation about the recap with Katara's journey and the waterbending mm-hmm. scroll. But just ever since then, I've been like, oh, hey, like, what, what? Hey, writers, I see you. What do you, what do you want me to see <laughs> before I go watch this episode? What, what do you want me to be thinking about and paying attention to? It's subtle, but... <laughs> But it just <laughs> yeah. a slight turn of the head. And the second the second I saw that this week, I was just like, Oh, yep, this is this is what we're talking about. This is this is our episode right here. I will say for like like I said, I'm not a huge fan of the summary. Like 
I, I feel it doesn't do justice to Aang and Zuko's journey through this episode. Like, it focuses mainly on Sokka getting a job. And I'm like, this is not a Sokka episode. I mean, that's a big step for Sokka. It's true, but I think he has enough of, like, responsibility with trying to keep Team Avatar alive sometimes. Same with Katara. Um, and I think, you know, we had our we had our whole, like, Sokka emotional journey with, you know, Jet. So I think, I don't know, I think it just deserves a little, a little love to both. But I also get that this early on, you probably don't want to, we're creating the sympathy for Zuko, like, now. This is, this, we're not going to talk about him just yet in the summary, because then it kind of gives it all away. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a difference between, like, the writers and the director giving something away, or, you know alluding to something in a show re in an episode recap as opposed to whoever at Netflix is writing these summaries boutique who doesn't want to spoil the show for everyone watching <laughs> just thinking of boutique <laughs> when they said at the pirate boutique <laughs> yeah well here we have you know the angler and the plans going awry i can't Someone, some copy editor somewhere is having fun with these descriptions. <laughs> if they'd like to reach out at the pie show. Yes, if you are or know the copy editor at Netflix who writes the episode descriptions, please put them in touch with us. We would love Even to talk. Even if it is an algorithm, I would love to talk to the algorithm. I'm just, I'm such a fan of the, of the word usage. It's great. Nangler. <laughs> no, it's our, our like that's it's it's Avatar, not Buffy. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's a different show. You have an interesting Zuko line towards the start of this episode, and I want your thoughts on it. Okay, yes. He he says finding the Avatar is far more important than any individual safety. Yeah. What what do you do, do you think that he believes that after watching this episode like I I something about I don't know if it was Dante Vasco's delivery of the line or the way they animated Zuko that just like it stuck out. I think he wants to believe it. I think he wants to believe that he can be that ruthless person who would put other people's lives at risk to reach his goal. I mean, he's already shown that he can be risky with chasing down the Avatar into Fire Nation territory when he is, you know, uh, a wanted man in the Fire Nation. He's shown that he's willing to take that risk. However, I think that risk was mainly with him and Iroh. I don't recall too many other people on that boat, but uh, I think he really wants to be that person. And I think Given the nature of his background that we find out, that person is his dad. His dad would say, you know, his dad would, in a heartbeat, just walk over someone else's body to get the, get the thing that he needs. So I think that's the journey we're on, is how much does he mean it? I love that it, I love that it stands out. How much does he mean what he says there? And can he commit to it? And in the end, he doesn't. He sees the Avatar, and instead he focuses on saving the men on the boat first. And putting his own life in danger. 
Yeah. He shows he's strong. He shows he can be a good leader. He just doesn't really necessarily have the social skills yet to be a good leader, but maybe he can learn those. Yeah, I this episode has me torn because my initial inclination is he's he's engaging in that, you know, beneficent leader, you know, self-sacrificial behavior because maybe Iroh is starting to rub off on him. But with so much of his backstory that we see in with so much of Zugo's backstory that we see in this episode, I think it's I don't know, maybe it's not necessarily Iroh rubbing off on him, but Iroh pulling out what's really been there all along. Mm-hmm. We start to see that uh, Zuko had a, a moral compass of some kind at the beginning. And I feel like this journey has been Zuko trying to stamp that self out of himself because he, his, he was publicly humiliated. He was hurt by his father in front of everyone. I mean, he was, he was tortured, basically. He was traumatized. And he was traumatized for caring. He was traumatized for caring about other people's lives and other, and other people's futures and thinking of others. So, of course, Zuko's reaction to that is, well, that must have been bad. I was punished for doing that in the first place. This episode really shows how characters can react to a traumatic event in very different ways. Zuko's traumatic event, him speaking up and his father challenging him to an Agni Kai and uh, burning his face in the Agni Kai, Zuko has been fighting that battle every single day since it happened. He is continually fighting that battle. And when he is confronted with something like that, he will try to fight it. He tries to fight members of the crew. He does the Agni Kai with the Admiral. He uh, wants to fight everyone and everything because he is continuing to fight that same battle with his father over and over again and trying to create a different result. And even trying to fight the Avatar and capture the avatar is him trying to win that same battle and he just can't because you can't go back and change what happened and so he's stuck on that point now ang on the other hand his traumatic event the storm that that made him crash into the ocean when he ran away he has been running from that trauma from him hearing that he was going to be taken away from monkeyazzo the, man, the father figure that he had in his life, he ran away because he did not want to be take, he did not want to be taken away by someone else. He's been running and running and running. And when he sees the storm that's coming, when he hears about the storm, when the angler confronts Aang saying, you know, where'd you go? You were supposed to be our avatar. Where did you go? Aang runs and he runs and he hides and he keeps running. And ever since Aang found out he was the Avatar, he has been running from it and running from that trauma and running from the trauma of, and it's just, it's compiling because him running in the first place caused him to miss a whole hundred years and he keeps trying to run. And so what we're starting to see is our characters coming to a point where, uh, Aang needs to figure out how to stop running, and Zuko needs to figure out when to stop fighting. And we see at the end of this episode, Aang 
runs into the storm to fight the storm, and he cuts through that large wave that tries to take him down, and he fights it. And then we see Zuko, instead of fighting to go, go after the Avatar and fight that, he pauses his fight to save a member of his crew. And to run to safer waters. Yeah, and to know when to know when to fight, to know, you know, when, when, is, when is that battle happening? And to protect himself first. To run. Yeah. They need to learn to be more like each other. Mm-hmm. But both those, both those tactics that they have, they've been, tr- they've been doing them over and over and over again. And it's not working. And they're tired. They're exhausted, and they're both getting to the point where they won't be able to do it anymore. Aang is finding that his is, is his time, he has that ticking clock of Sozin's Comet, and it'll be interesting to see when Zuko's point of no return is, when he has exa- exhausted himself of the fight, because we saw a pause this episode, but we haven't seen that, that exhaustion where he's said enough. I think Aang got closer to that breaking point than Zuko did this episode. I think I can agree with that. I think they both, you know, sidled up to it without necessarily reaching it. But I, I think Aang maybe got a little closer. I mean, like you said, when he when he turns on that wave and, you know, blasts that, what, like, wave of air through the wave of water. Yeah. That is powerful. He cuts through. Mm-hmm. And and when he goes into the Avatar state at the end, mirroring his his venture into the Avatar state when he froze himself, that is a powerful moment. And he chooses to fight instead of to hide. Yeah. It's also, this episode, he goes into the Avatar state twice. This is the first time we've seen, like, twice in, in one episode, right? Yep. Once where he starts to talk about that his his traumatic episode with his history with Katara and all the feelings he has kind of just wrapped up inside himself from running of being the avatar and he starts it starts to just bubble over and i think it's really powerful to see that moment of like loss of control when he's having trouble even telling his story to then that moment of control when they're all under the water and he goes into the avatar state and it's it's this eerie calm that comes over it, this calm and control where he gets everyone onto Appa and he flies out. The first time he goes into the avatar state, it's almost like the avatar state is taking over. Yes. And like the past lives of the avatar are taking the reins for a second to, you know, make sure that he doesn't die. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the episode, he chooses to engage in the Avatar state himself to save his friends. Mm-hmm. And it's it's kind of that idea of, you know, letting letting the trauma control you versus you controlling how you react to the trauma. It's just really powerful. <laughs> and it's beautiful visual symmetry. Like, it's, yes. it's like poetry. It rhymes. Oh, yes. I think what brings Aang closer to that point of exhaustion, that point of exhaustion with his method of dealing with his, uh, with his issues is the fact that he is the one telling his story in this flashback episode. He is the one opening up to Katara and saying, this is what happened. It takes them a bit to open up because, you know, 
starts to panic, Avatar State, you know, and he even, he ran away before she followed him and, you know, just tried to steal it out of him of, like, what's going on? Whereas Zuko, and Zuko's flashback is not told by Zuko. It is not Zuko processing the events that happened in the telling of the story. It is Iroh sharing it with the crew of what happened. I think it is so important of who is telling this story. And I wonder how it would be different with Zuko telling this story. And I don't even think that Zuko would tell this story at this point to anyone, not even Iroh. I don't think Zuko's ready to even acknowledge the story in and out. Like, I don't think he's ready to say, yeah, that happened. No. And unfortunately, every day when he wakes up in the morning and he sees and he sees himself, he has to deal with that. Yeah. And, and Aang is reaching that point of, like, I can talk about it. It's interesting that both our characters kind of have visual reminders of who they, of who they are in a way, of Aang has his arrow tattoos to remind him of his past and the people who are gone. And Zuko has the scar on his face that reminds him of his past and the people who are no longer in his life. I literally just thought that up. Don't. (laughs) (laughs) Neither of them can even look in a mirror. No. Without having their trauma thrown in their face. It is constantly there. You said that and it's like a really serious thought and it's really hitting me. But the first thing that my brain thought of was um, from The Lion King 2. When that yes! one zebra sings that line, <laughs> evil is plain as the scar on his face. Yes. <laughs> evil is plain as the scar on his face. But that's, that is Zuko's life. Like yeah. every time he looks in the mirror, like he, he sees his own failure. He sees what he needs to be. Mm-hmm on himself in his own pain like he he needs to be the source of his trauma in his own eyes that's his entire life is telling him you need to be more like your father and his father is the source of his trauma no matter how much distance he can get from his father physically and from the fire nation he cannot distance himself from what happened yeah that sucks that's just awful that's so much to put on a child it's just bad (laughs) Not only is he told, like, you know, there is bad in the world, but he's told, like, there's bad in the world and you need to be that. I don't know if he's necessarily told that, but I think he's, uh, his... Well, you said it yourself. He, you know, he wants to be more like his father. He believes he needs to be. I don't think he sees his father as, as bad. I think it's a very complicated relationship he has with him, yes, but I, he does not realize, he does not know any better that his dad is doing the wrong thing. I mean, his dad's a really successful guy. He's running the Fire Nation. He's got, he's been collecting, you know, different areas of the world. You know, he's powerful. And that's something that Zuko growing up, like he looked up, he looked up and said, yes, I want to be powerful like my dad. And his dad said, this is how you have to be to be powerful. And even if you, you know, we'll learn more of Iroh's background. And Iroh was also powerful. And, you know, it was a general. He, he has done some bad things in his life. I think the, 
the young starry-eyed Zuko, like literally starry-eyed Zuko that we see in the flashbacks, when when he has that outburst in in the war chamber against what he views as this is like maybe not full-blown evil, but this does not, you know, gel with my beliefs. You are sending loyal innocents to die. Like, he has that outburst. He knows on some level that that plan is wrong. I think he thought he was protecting his father from a bad plan because that's a general. That is that is some other guy who is saying it. It's not his dad who's saying it. That may be. He thought he... I think he was thought he was protecting his dad from like a bad plan. Like, Dad, this is this is a bad idea, and I'm saving you from it. And that's why when he shows up to the Agni Kai, he is shocked to find that his father is the one who's doing the Agni Kai and not that general. He thought he was protecting his dad's honor and respect, but he found out he's disrespectful. But in the outburst, he doesn't say it's dishonorable to send them in. He doesn't say it's disrespectful to send them in. He said you can't send them in. He 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 doesn't frame his outburst around protecting his father. He frames his outburst around this is, you know, morally, ethically, whatever, wrong. This is bad. This is not right. And whether or not he, you know, as a child conceives of his father and, you know, can reconcile his father as evil in supporting the plan that is wrong, like, the fact remains, his father supports the plan that is wrong. And Zuko may not be ready to reconcile all of that into fully coming to terms with the fact that, you know, his father is evil, but he has all the pieces. And I do think on some deep level that he can't acknowledge that he doesn't know is there. He knows and I think this episode is trying to tell us that, you know, on some deep level, he knows that he, like, his world is telling him he needs to be evil. He needs to be bad. Again, I don't think, I am of the belief, I like to, when I, when I do acting, I love playing villains. Because I don't think that a character goes out there necessarily saying, I, I'm going to be bad. I'm going to be evil. I think with Zuko, that maybe the pieces are there and that maybe, and that, you know, we do know at some point he puts all the pieces together. He sees the puzzle. He sees, yeah, Ozai is not a really outstanding, you know, upstanding character. But I think this is his first time. I believe this is his first time into the war room is what, you know, he's told like, yes, you can join, you can join the war room, but you can't, like, do not speak up, do not say anything. He hasn't seen the inner workings of war before. So, and he's a child, and he doesn't know what goes behind war, what goes into war. He doesn't hear his father's response to the plan. He speaks up first. It's impulsive, because he's a child, but he says, you know, that's wrong. That's, that's, that's not, that's not right. You can't, you can't hurt innocent people like that. I genuinely think (laughs) and you can disagree with me on this, is that I don't think Zuko believed his dad would go with that plan. I don't think he thought he would go with that plan. Because I think if he thought he would go with that plan, he would have been a surprise that Ozai showed up for the Agni Kai instead of the general. And then when when Ozai shows up and punishes Zuko, and Zuko pleads and says, you know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, 
he learns learns from that experience, internalizes from that experience. I do not know enough about war. This is what war is. I, the that general was right, and I was wrong. My dad is right, and I was wrong, because there is no other path. And then he's set out into he's pushed out into the world and told his only way to get back into the good graces of the person he looked up to and into his family and into his home is to find the avatar for his father and to have this and to have this mission and to be to be that ruthless to be he, uh, the things that you know he feels he's lacking so he has to try harder at being that strong ruthless he practices every day he fights he's continually fighting because he wants to be better more tougher more ruthless and then maybe he can be seen in the good graces of his father because that is what he wants he wants that acceptance from his father more than i i, I think more than he wants the avatar the avatar is the key to him getting accepted acceptance from his father oh i agree but i i have a couple questions go ahead do you think that ozai went with the general's plan yeah like it's that's pretty like boilerplate evil ozai move to do like yeah we yeah Oh use yeah. The fresh yeah. meat as a distraction and we sneak in the back and we, you know, destroy everybody. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. Recognizing that, you know, Z- Zuko spoke out against the plan before ever hearing his father's reaction which we know was would probably be in favor of. Mhm. Do you think Zuko ever found out after the fact that his father went with that plan? I don't think his father was ever able to follow through with the plan, and that is mainly because that plan was for bossing say. Okay. But do you think Zuko ever found out after the fact that his father was in support of that plan? I think he found out when he showed up to the Agni Kai. If not explicitly, then implicitly by his yeah. father showing up to the Agni Kai. Okay. Yeah. Then I just, like, he speaks out against the plan as, you know, maybe not evil, but bad. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I'm stuck on this, but, like, I, I, I want to really, you know, get to the bottom. Mm-hmm. He he recognizes the plan. We're gonna. Ca- I'm just gonna call it e- as evil. Yeah. Just c- for lack of a better term. Go ahead. Sure. He may not think of himself as evil. Sure, Ozai may not think of himself as evil, and I don't think Ozai does think of himself as evil. Mm-hmm. Because I agree that villains tend to not vilify themselves. Yeah. I don't think that Zuko considers himself to be. Evil. I don't think that Ozai considers himself to be evil, but I do think that Zuko considering the plan to be evil and then learning that Ozai was in support of the plan, regardless of whether or not it was enacted, is a, you know, you can make the jump that that is when you combine that with the statement that Zuko knows he needs to be more like his dad, logically, he needs to be more evil. And I think that disconnect and that dissonance Mm -hmm. is part of his, like, the tragedy of his character. Mm -hmm. Because we see as a child, you know, at his core, he's not a bad guy, but he's constantly being told by the events of his life that he needs to do bad things. I think it's, I think it's very much the idea, this is a child learning it's not personal, it's business. And, you know, so this is, this, it, 
this is Zuko not understand. It's it's not personal. It's business. He needs to have that distance. That's what he's learning. I don't think it's evil. I think he's learning that there is a distance between war and personal feelings. I don't think he ever learns that lesson. I think no. everything is always personal with Zuko. Yes, yes, exactly. That's part of what makes him and that's Zuko. That's the dissonance. That's the dissonance. Whereas Ozai and other members of the family who we see in this episode uh, are everything is, it's not personal, it's business. This is business. This is a business transaction killing. <laughs> I mean, and Ozai has it so far that, like, he's so, he's so strict in it that he will burn. His own child. I think that this show makes an attempt to frame that lack of empathy, that lack of compassion, mm-hmm. as maybe not evil incarnate, but definitely bad. But it also shows, I mean... And a step off the path. Zuko can have complicated feelings about his dad with, you know, this person hurt him, but he still is seeking his acceptance. Yeah, I'm not saying he can't. Mm-hmm. This is someone, I mean, Zuko wanted to be by his father's side for that war meeting. We have two characters, Zuko and Aang, in this episode. Zuko being pushed away from his father by his father, and Aang being taken away from his father figure against his father fi- father's figure's wishes, and seeking that acceptance. And for Aang, that acceptance is a little too late. Uh, and for Zuko, that acceptance may never come. Animal alert! We didn't have any new animals this week. Giant Momo? You're going to ignore Giant Momo from the dream sequence? Is Giant Momo a distinct... Number one, not real. That's a dream animal. Wow, okay, you're really going to upset me when we get to the whole, like, dream fight between Momo and Appa, but okay. Number two, it's just Momo, but bigger. Okay, but... Would you choose Momo but bigger or Appa? Momo kind of gets terrifying when he gets bigger. Okay, see, this is the emotion that I wanted to know about. That's, I'm, I I don't think I trust a bigger Momo. I think I only trust Momo because he's so small that, like, I feel Mm. physically dominant over him. (laughs) (laughs) But if Momo were large, it'd be much more of a threat. Yes. (laughs) Okay. All right. All right. Good to know. I wanted to know your feelings on that. Um, I also, we talk about interesting cutscenes. There is a moment of geese that are flying in a V. Well, they look like geese. I I assume they're geese because it's a V. Um, It could be duck. It could be, I don't know. But I assume geese because I'm from the Northeast in in America. So many geese and they're all such jerks. Yeah, I mean, I I just, I really don't like large birds, personally. I have a grudge against them. I'm okay with birds. I just don't like geese. But I love Untitled Goose Game. Yes, that is the, that is fun. But th- does the geese are flying in a V, and we see it over by the gang as they're at this small town, and then we see it cuts to those same geese over Zuko and the boat. So they're close, right? Like, is that is that what we're trying to imply that they're close, or is it just a different set of geese? I did not catch that, but I would say that, yeah, that implies that they're close. Yeah, because they, they keep, they just keep bumping into each other. If, yeah, and if it's the same V, like, that's probably supposed to be the same, like, we can, yeah, 
It's yeah. easy to believe that there are multiple sets of ge- multiple V's of geese flying around. Mm-hmm. But like, come on, it's probably the same set of geese. Yeah, yeah. And we see later in the episode that they were close together because they were caught yeah. in the same storm. It just, I, th- I feel like it's just another way to show that Aang and Zuko are cosmically linked. That you know, even these elements of nature are just throwing them together. Whether you know what. Whether it's the same birds flying overhead or the same storm that's battering them around. They are cosmically linked. Also, one more thing to the cute animal alert area is uh, someone says, well, I'll be a hog monkey's uncle. And I think that's a saying I want to say more often in my life. You should start saying it. I should. I should. I think I should just like work it into my everyday life. I really love it. I want to hear at least one hog monkey's uncle in every episode going forward. I don't know about every episode, but I I can... You said you wanted to say it more. I'm trying to help you achieve your goals. Don't let your memes be dreams. All right. Thank you for supporting me, Colton. You're welcome. In my dreams of adding weird phrases to my life. Go be a hog monkey's uncle. Well, I'll be a hog monkey's uncle. What a whopper of an episode we had. This episode made me feel really bad for Aang. Yeah? How so? No one will play with him. Oh, I know! I know. No one will play with him, and, like, a day later, he's waking up and asking Katara if she wants to go penguin sledding, and she says yes? Oh, you just put that into context for me. Oh. I never would have noticed if you hadn't been so adamant in... Oh, yeah. The early episodes about the penguins, like, that would have completely gone over my head, except for... Oh, and he was just accepted uh, right away. Yeah. Oh, and then he thought the acceptance was because she didn't know he was the Avatar, and then she found out, and he thought it was all going to go away, probably. Yeah. Oh, no, I just made myself sad. Yeah. Oh, God. And then a couple days after that, he finds out it's been a hundred years, and all those kids that wouldn't play with him are dead? Also, so I went looking this up because I was curious. I was trying to figure out how soon after Aang leaves does the Fire Nation attack. And from some, like, internet searches, thanks, fellow Atla fans, because uh, a lot of people seem to think that this happened maybe weeks to, like, a few months after Aang left. Like, it's within a year of Aang leaving that this happens that the genocide of the Air Nation happens. And I love how Katara says, you know, I know it's meant to be this way. You are here now for us. That everything to this point has led you to this. And I'm going to say, chalk that to another point to destiny, that this is his destiny to save the world this way. Just because Katara believes it doesn't make it true. I don't know, because I've got we've been talking about how Katara's kind of telling this story. Yeah, so of course she's going to frame the story that she's telling to sync up and line up with her belief system. But I mean, I I gotta say, I think she has a point. She believes Aang that, can save the world. Like so yeah, of course she's gonna tell this story about how he's destined to save the world. But I think she has a point here because if he had stayed, he probably would have died too and he wouldn't be in the position to save the world that he's in now he knew one element 
Would he have died? I think so. He only knew one element, and if the Fire Nation came within, you know, even say a few weeks. Yeah, but the whole of the like the all of the air nomads would have basically made it their personal mission to make sure that he gets out alive. I mean, they made it their personal mission to all try and stay alive themselves, and it didn't happen. There was no way out of that one. It's probably a lot easier to make sure that the one kid gets away than it is to make sure that they all don't die. I don't know. But I I don't think he would have made it. And we don't know that there was not an air nomad who did get away. Um, I mean, okay. Interesting take. We only know there were a lot of skeletons there. Like, that just... I don't think Aang was really walking through taking a head count. Technically, we have not visited the other air temples. However, they have been systematically also killing uh, waterbenders. So they have been searching the entire globe and killing anyone. And it seems like they started this 100 years ago. So they've had 100 years to kill off every single Yeah, but the air nomads are nomadic, and it's really hard to hit a moving target that never stops moving. You're gonna have to give me something more than, you know, it's possible. I'm I'm just saying, like, you know, they're, they're very likely all gone at this point, but that's not to say that, like, they were all exterminated on the day way back when. I think it's actually pretty unlikely that they were all exterminated on the day. I feel Sozin had a very particular plan, and he studied and was prepared. I think it's reasonable that maybe one or two got out. They're, you know, they're airbenders. They're not earthbenders. They're they're pretty slick. They're really good at the weaving. I gotta let you know, there, there are probably not many people who are in your camp on that. Okay. That's that's my belief, and I'm sticking by it. You do that. I am not as... I look forward to the emails. Tell me all the reasons why I'm wrong. <laughs> but yeah, Aang made me sad this episode, because no one would play with him. I didn't realize how advanced the air scooter was until this episode. Cause I don't think we had any reason to think it was advanced until this episode. Like, yeah, no. so much of our context for airbending it's is Aang. what Aang can do. Yeah. I mean, we've seen Gyatso a little bit in other flashbacks, but, like, it's just, we only have Aang to go on so far. This is our first time seeing anyone else, really. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that the other airbenders that we see in this episode, they don't make a great impression. With their abilities. I mean, first off, they are kids. But yeah. also, you know, Aang is the only one to have his tattoos. And it's funny because, no. I, I remember thinking when I was younger that the tattoos meant that he was the Avatar. Like, I didn't, I didn't get the later context that, you know, tattoos make you an airbending master. Like, that, that's a symbol of being an airbending master. I thought it had something to do with being the Avatar itself. I think it's really cool they show us how they found out he was the Avatar. With the toys? Yeah, what do you think about that? Uh, I think I wish I had more time when I was watching the episode to pause it and look at each of the toys, but I thought, oh, I bet Kelly paused it and looked at each of the toys and is going to tell me all about each of the toys. <laughs> no, I just... Um... It's something that they talk about in the background stories for Kyoshi and everything, and specifically the clay turtle. Was um, that's that's actually how 
they found Avatar Kyoshi. Like that's a it's a airbender tactic of uh, apparently like each nation has their own strategy for finding the avatar among their nation. And um, when the they were having trouble finding the earth bending avatar, they decided, well, let's try the air, let's try the air method and bring out the toys. And so it was just really cool. <laughs> yeah, it did, they they put out a bunch of children's toys. And it's actually, um, I believe that's uh, something they do to find the Dalai Lama as well. Am I wrong? I don't know. Hold on. I, I saw something about this. Yes. Um, it is shown that the four toys Aang chooses that determined his destiny are a clay turtle, a string-powered propeller, a wooden hog monkey, and a wooden hand drum. This method is akin to the one used in determining the next incarnation of a Tuku Lama in Tibetan Buddhism. Hmm. I did know it sounded, I actually, like, I knew it had something to do with Buddhism. Like, it, it, it sounded familiar enough. But that is a method that, that they've used. Um, so, it was, you know, and they based a lot of the, 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 the air monks off of that, off of Buddhism. So... It's really cool to see that kind of brought through. I also like how it's a more, like, spiritually-minded test. Yeah. And I just love whenever the show has a cultural touchstone to the real world. Like, it, mm-hmm. I feel like it makes the the world of the show and the lore of the show stronger when it has those you know, real-world foundations. I agree, yeah. Because it's, it's a bit of humanity in the fantasy. It's really cool to see that this ritual of finding the next iteration of this very supernaturalist type being is something so natural of just finding a familiarity with a childhood toy. I do really love your framing of Gyatso as a father figure to Aang because I, not that I never noticed it or picked up on it, but I don't think I ever fully like concretized the thought in my own mind that, you know, Gyatso is father figure to Aang and and representative of that in Aang's life. And I have I've concretized Iroh as a fi- as a father figure to Zuko. But because I never concretized Gyatso as a father figure to Aang until you mentioned it, I've never really looked at any sort of comparison between Gyatso and Iroh, (laughs) which I'm starting to do now, thanks to you. And the first thing I'm coming up on is they both play Pai Show. Pai Show. And they both are considered to be, like, sort of out there amongst their peers in their respective societies. And in their methods of mentoring their charges. Right? Yeah. Like, the other air nomads being like, Gyatso, you're not doing enough. And Gyatso being like, you need to have fun. Yeah. He needs to still, he needs to have that bit of humanity. Yeah, and I think, I think because for so much of the show, Aang is our one touchstone to the air nomads. And he has already, like, bought into Gyatso's philosophy and worldview that we tend to ascribe that to all of the air nomads, but this episode shows us that's really not the case. Like, yeah, Gyatso was 
kind of radical. Yeah. I like that way to describe him, we're radical. Yeah, and because he was able to get through to Aang, and because Aang survives after everyone, like, we conceive of the Air Nomads as a lot more radical than maybe they were. Yeah, because Aang and Gyatso had this very kindred spirit thing going on, that they, they saw pieces of themselves in each other. They're jokesters. Yeah, they have this, this lightness about them. Even They can take things seriously, but they need to find that levity in life. Levity. <laughs> Airbenders. Lightness. Lightness. They do, but I think it, that, uh, that, that just little touch of levity um, and how that can carry you through a situation. I think, you know, the, the monks were all about trying to, you know, he should be training to fight. He should be, you know, like, I, I mean, not, he should be training for the upcoming. Things are changing. They literally say a storm is coming, which is just, ooh, and they're not talking about the skies. Like the foreshadowing? Yeah, but I love, I love that you pointed out that Pi Show is a really strong connector between Gyatso and Iroh. I think they would have been friends. I I think so. Yeah. yeah. Especially did did you notice what Gyatso is like leading with in in the Pi Show game? What? He has one tile that he interacts with directly <gasps> on the Pi Show board. Is it? Is it safe? It's it. a white lotus tile. Oh my goodness. Which is a very particular method according to Iroh. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Ooh. It very well may be that like that method was originally developed by the air nomads and it is particular and unusual because there are no more air nomads left to employ it. Whoa. But Iroh has studied it because Iroh has studied them because Iroh understands that you need to look to all other people for wisdom. That's a really cool connection. Yeah. Cause there are, Ooh, I like that. Oh, I like that. Yeah. And that's why it's so unusual for him to use that method. Ooh, Colton! And no one knows what to do when they come up against it. <gasps> and no one knows what to do when they come up against Aang. Aang is his own white lotus tile in this war and in this battle on the Pi Show Game of Life. Colton, stop it! <laughs> I know we talk about the battle at the end a lot, and I think the closest I can kind of get to the battle at the end is I want to talk about this Agni Kai that Zuko has with his father, and we're seeing it through Iroh's eyes, and I want to point something out. This is the first time we see Zuko cry. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to be the one to point out the first time we see Zuko like genuinely laugh, and this is where we see him cry. Man, we're getting a lot of Zuko emotions early in this show. Yeah. But the thing is, we're getting them in weird context because I don't think outside, I mean, outside of, you know, a flashback or like that small moment where he let himself laugh, I mean, doesn't really have too many other emotions besides anger. That's the dominant emotion. You don't see him enjoy himself. You don't see him uh get you know when he gets down on himself and gets frustrated he gets angry that is his reaction he doesn't start to cry he doesn't start to break down that way so it's just 
interesting to see that moment of uh, vulnerability. I think what stuck out more to me with the Agni Kai Mm -hmm. was before he turns around and realizes that it's his father. Mm. We get that nice close-up of him, like, you know, down on all fours, preparing for the fight. And so far, when we've seen Zuko about to go into battle, he is teetering on the edge of rage. But this time... Really, the earliest time we have seen him about to go into battle, he was so calm and peaceful. I think it's a kind of a righteousness. Like, he, he feels he's doing the right thing. Yeah, and I think, I think had it not been his father, he may have been a more competent bender in that Agni Kai than we have ever seen him be. Yeah. Oh, I agree with that. I think he has, in that moment... So much power. And I think that the events of that Agni Kai lock that away from him. Mm, that's a good way of putting that. And I think he he turns to his anger as a crutch, as a substitute for that bit of him that he hasn't been able to touch. I mean, if in the start of this episode, when he's about to duel the lieutenant, he's so enraged, so hot-headed his hand is steaming yeah he lets the fire control him but when he had that vulnerability when he had that righteousness to him he was in control of the flame and that battle that i keep talking about him fighting every day is also him fighting that him fighting that fire and fighting to control it and he can't or he barely can he can't and also his life feels out of control also in the Agni Kai, I didn't realize we see Azula for the first time. In the show. In the show. Besides, like, she's she's in the opening. But you don't. Yeah, yeah, but you yeah. don't. But I think I never realized that we see her then. Because we don't see her again for so long. And we for don't so see her long. as her for so long that you forget. Yeah. And it's really cool to see, like, I realize now that for a while, like, when I first saw this, I didn't question the young girl who was standing next to Iroh for this. Like, you see Iroh and, like, a bunch of men, and you see this small girl. Iroh and Zhao. Iroh and Zhao, yes! Ooh! Zhao is behind Iroh watching it happen. Zhao knows. Yeah, ooh. Which, apparently, not everyone in the Fire Nation knows because Iroh has to tell this story to the crew. Yeah, they thought it was a training accident, not something his father purposely did to him. So how long have they been at sea that they don't know this? Or is he, like, constantly getting a new crew? Is this something, you know, I mean, it's probably something Zuko wants to keep under wraps. Like, you know, he he wants people to think of him. I think Zuko still thinks, all right, if I capture the Avatar, bring him back to my dad, I can still be the crown prince. It's not going to be a problem. This whole little banishment thing will just go away. And, I mean, if if it comes to it, you don't, you don't want people the people that you're eventually going to lead, knowing that your dad did this, especially if the dad was the mighty ruler who gave him the power. You know what I mean? It's bad mm-hmm. optics. Yeah. I really, but it's the jarring context of seeing the little girl and just the look on Azula's face of just like, ha ha, like she's intrigued. She does not shy away. And without speaking, without acknowledging her existence, we get a glimpse into... Her character. Oh, she tells you 
everything about who she is in that moment. Everything. I mean, Iroh is is beside himself that this is happening. Zhao is stone cold. And the little girl next to him is like, yes, do it. Burn him. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> also, again, I think it's so cool to just kind of drop that in there. And then not pick it up for so long that by the time we eventually see that little girl, we know, oh, that's that that one's that one's something's weird about her. Mm-mm, no, no. Yeah. There's something off about Azula. Colton, I love how I love moments where we get to see different types of bending and we get to see something really different here which is lightning redirection. That was so cool. It was so cool. <laughs> and it just, it weirdly catches Iroh off guard. <laughs> yeah, it's especially because, like, lightning redirection comes up again later in the show. Yeah. And we see Iroh is pretty good at it. Mm-hmm. But it never really looks the way it does here. Yeah. But also, every other time we see lightning redirection happening, it's a result of lightning bending. True, yeah. So, is the lightning that you bend just, like, less powerful lightning than actual lightning? I mean, that makes sense. That that makes sense to me. I think the other thing is, I'm pretty sure lightning redirection is very much Iroh's own thing. Am I wrong? I, I'm pretty sure it is. Um, like it's, I it's Iroh. Iroh comes up with the technique. He developed the technique. Yeah. Yes, he developed the technique. So it's still something like. I mean, how many how many chances do you get at lightning redirection? And I'm gonna guess that he hasn't done it in a while. Probably. I'm guessing. You know this. Banishment for Zuko has kind of been a little bit of a vacation for Iroh. <laughs> um, looking after his, you know, sullen nephew. Yeah, but I I do also just think that, like, we can see Katara, you know, waterbend a wave, but when the giant tidal wave comes, like, it's just a more powerful wave. Like, I think the elements in their natural state, it's okay for them to be more powerful than the elements when they're being bended bent i also like that it takes uh it shows a lack uh, it shows control in its in its element like as much as as you know iroh can control the elements there is still so much more something so much more powerful in the universe than what he can do with it there are things that are out of his control entirely. Um, and that and he can are... still redirect it, but it's going to yeah. make his hair stand on end. Yeah, and that there are limits. There are physical limits to certain types of bending. Yeah, it's cool stuff. So cool. I didn't realize we see, like, lightning redirection this early. Because it doesn't come up again for a while. We see a lot this episode that doesn't come up again for a while. I know. This is the first time that we see... Alright, I'm kind of putting together some pieces. Bear with me. We see Azula, lightning redirection, and an Agni Kai in the Fire Nation for the first time. We hear Ozai speak for the first time. I'm just putting together one big scene. (laughs) (laughs) And we see those three things... Two out of those three things without any 
verbalization of them. Verbally acknowledge Azula, and we don't even verbally acknowledge the lightning redirection. We just see Uncle Iroh do it. He doesn't talk about it. He doesn't discuss it. We just see him do it. Yeah, if you if you're you know looking down to get a snack at that point, you don't even see it. Yeah, we do see Zuko choose to not pursue the Avatar for the second time. What do you think's going on in that decision, Colton? Because he has two choices to to go after the Avatar, and in this one episode, and he doesn't. I think what we see in that decision is is maybe a little different from what is necessarily in Zuko's mind because we have just seen this flashback through the lens of Iroh telling this story about Zuko's past, but Zuko isn't engaging with that story over the course of this episode. From from Zuko's perspective, he gets into an argument with the lieutenant. Iroh says, you know, hey, you know, we're all getting cranky. We're all probably a little hungry. We've been at sea for too long. Let's just, you know, let's take five and we'll come back. And then Iroh goes off and tells the story with the crew, and we follow that. But Zuko is... I don't know, in his bunk, maybe? Left to cool off, like... Yeah. Yeah. Takes a nap. Blowing off some steam. <laughs> like, I, I don't know. But then the storm hits, and, you know, he has the opportunity to make a decision. And Iroh just told him that he needs to basically be a better leader. And this is his first opportunity to do so. And he rises to the challenge. And he puts the lives of his crew ahead of his own goal. And I, I genuinely think it's because Iroh got through to him in that, you know, little little interaction at the start of the episode. Mm. I will point out that Iroh, in support of Zuko's decision to, you know, repair the ship and get to safety, says we have to go to the eye of the storm. And, you know... We know that the eye of the storm is calm seas and and all that, but if you step back a little bit, the eye of the storm is the center, the the metaphoric heart of the storm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've just spent the last 20 minutes opening up our characters' pasts and their respective traumas, and Aang has interacted with his directly, but Zuko is still running. And Zuko is not interacting with it directly. And I think this is, you know, if we're going to tie this all up in a neat bow, this is Iroh saying that Zuko needs to go to the heart of his, of his storm, his trauma. And he needs to go to the heart, the center, the root. Zuko's fighting the wrong battle. He's fighting the wrong battle every day. It's the same lesson Iroh has been teaching Zuko since the Agni Kai was Zhao. Ooh. You have to attack the root. I love that. Yeah. In the Agni Kai was Zhao, the root was Zhao's stance. Mm-hmm. In Zuko's Agni Kai with himself, it's the heart of the storm. It's what, what is causing this turmoil in you. And when you finally go there, there will be peace. There's also this clarity as to what's the best way to get out. Because, all right, now you've tackled that that problem. How, how are you going to move forward? And it's not going to be easy moving forward, but you can at least find your bearings and choose a path. No, it's not something you brought up there that I didn't know if you were going to go there, which is really interesting. And you, said, you talked about Zuko ste- stepping up to leadership and how... 
it's not from any of this context that Iroh is giving to the rest of the crew. It's from, you know, whatever Zuko has been doing on the ship, whether he's taking a nap, whatever, cooling off, you know, training, whatever. Blowing a great big volcano of fire behind the ship into the water. <laughs> Practicing pie show. Who knows? Um, <laughs> Shaving his head angrily in the mirror. <laughs> what popped into my head when you were talking about that, though, is that I feel like Zuko trusted his instincts over uh, what he w- he knew his father would want. He trusted his instincts, which was to climb to the top and to catch that man. He trusted his instincts of, you know, well, we're going to need the ship if we're going to capture the Avatar. And, um, yeah, I just thought that that's what popped into my head. And that, you know, maybe we should trust Zuko's instincts a little better and that Zuko should trust his instincts a little better. Because, I mean, his instincts when he stood up in the war room, I mean, he was right. He was he was super duper right about that. Like, don't kill innocents. Like, that's bad. And, um, I mean, he was punished for it. But here's a moment where he, again, him climbing up that, uh, up that stack and catching that man, that is Zuko's own moral compass and Zuko's own instincts as a leader over that of the teachings of his father. And, and I, I think it's also very much his instincts because I feel Iroh is not, Iroh is just guiding him to what he, he's already, you know, he already kind of feels. I don't think Iroh is necessarily teaching him a new path. He's saying, no, 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 no. It's in there. This is why I'm teaching you the fundamentals. It's in there. You have it. You just need to trust it. Thank you for listening to The Pie Show. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can find our show notes at thepieshow.fm slash 12. If you'd like to reach us, you can send us a tweet at The Pie Show. Or email us at thepieshowpodcast at gmail.com. There is so much. I don't even know like where we go from here with our characters resolving things. Where do we go, Colton? What's next? What's next for us? One of my favorite episodes of book one. What is it? Next week's episode, The Blue Spirit. The Blue Spirit! Yeah, Ooh. this is like two big episodes in a row. Yeah, that is a double whammy. But personally, I feel it's needed after The Great Divide. Because I I wasn't watching back in 2005. Was there, like, a mid-season break between these two episodes? I don't know. When did... when did You look up when the Blue Spirit aired. I'll look up when the storm aired. Okay. I'm actually on the storm. The storm was June 3rd, 2005. Yes, it was. Blue Spirit was June 17th, 2005. Wasn't even a mid-season break. No. They just went one to the other. When was a mid-season break? June 05 was a good month. Oh, the fortune tell. The, so Blue Spirit was was the end of uh, the first half of the season. Because okay. Because the fortune teller, um, which is the one after that, debuted September 23rd, 2005. That, ooh, that's a big break. Yeah, so they had to, they were they were ramping up to something there. I am excited about the Blue Spirit. I I don't remember the last time I've watched the Blue Spirit actually. I remember exactly the last time I watched the Blue Spirit. <laughs> it was the first time I watched the Blue Spirit. <laughs> Again, sometimes I get lazy in my rewatches and I don't go all the way back. This is like the most active rewatch I've ever done. Not just because I'm taking notes, but because 
I mean, I'm watching the, the title sequence every time, the recaps every time. There is no skip intro button for me. You know who you should ask when you need some guidance? Zuko's instincts. Zuko's instincts. I'm not going to lie. I also popped in my head when you were talking about like Zuko getting ready for battle for the Agni Kai. His, him getting ready for the battle for the Agni Kai very much reminded me of Sokka getting ready for the battle at the, at the, at the pole. Foils to our foils. We got foils on foils on foils. <laughs> What if all of our characters were all foils for each other? We got fencing foils. We got aluminum foils. Tin foils. Gold foil. Copper foil. Foils for all. 